Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Alan Dershowitz. He is, of course, one of America's leading political and legal commentators, intellectuals, and has been for a long, long time with a distinguished career, uh, not only in the public sphere as an attorney in very prominent cases, but also uh, at Harvard University. Uh, He's the author of 49 books, uh, a daunting figure, and now a 50th one, The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Our topic today, welcome Professor Dershowitz. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, we jump right into the book on on this show. You open by saying that a terrible thing has happened in the 21st century. Partisanship has replaced principle. What would you say to someone who objects, wait a minute, it's always been this way. People just hid their partisanship a, a little better back in the old days. No, I wouldn't agree with that. I think that uh, people did work together much better in past times, even in my lifetime. I mean, today, the Lincoln-Douglas debates couldn't occur. Half the country would say, we're on Lincoln's side, we don't want to hear Douglas. The other half would say, we're on Douglas's side, we don't want to hear Lincoln. The days in which I debated William Buckley uh, on television and in front of large Harvard audiences, and we would disagree fundamentally. He was a a traditional conservative and I a traditional liberal, Uh, but we could talk to each other and I learned from him and he learned from me. I haven't seen that now in the last several years. Uh, A better metaphor for that would be uh, Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of the former president of the United States, the daughter of the author of Profiles and Courage. Uh, She was seated next to me at a dinner and she said if she knew that I had been invited to the dinner, she would not have come. She didn't want to be in the same room as me. Uh, Lots of other people have done the same thing. I was recently invited to an engagement party and then I got an email saying you have to be disinvited because too many people have said if he comes, uh, we're not coming. The divide is much, much, much greater. Today, the hard left particularly, but the hard right as well, but the hard left will do anything to get Trump. Uh, Getting Trump trumps the Constitution, civil liberties, civil rights, freedom of speech, due process. The best example, perhaps, is Professor Lawrence Tribe very distinguished uh, former professor of constitutional at Harvard, he recommended to Merrick Garland that he prosecute President Trump for the attempted murder, the attempted murder of Pence. That may be the dumbest thing I've ever heard a law professor say, but he's adored by the left because he is somebody in the forefront of getting Trump. If you want to get Trump, everything is good. And if you defend the Constitution on behalf of Trump, no matter what you've done historically for 60 years, 
you are no longer acceptable in polite left-wing company. You know, maybe we should jump ahead uh, in the book because this brings a, a very notable episode in, in your life that helped prompt this book related to uh, Donald Trump. You didn't vote for Donald Trump. No. You were openly, I mean, as I said, you, you, you're, you're sort of a, 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 an old school liberal uh, Democratic Party. Uh, most, I guess, most of the time. I don't need to ask you about your voting oh, record. Almost but- all the time. Once I voted for Bill Weld, I've never voted for a Republican for president, though I regret voting for Barack Obama the second time. I would now, if I could take my vote back, have voted for George Romney over Barack Obama for his second term, not the first term. But I am a Democrat. But you believed that the the judicial system or maybe the forces in, in general that the, going after Trump, it was it was verging on persecution, and you felt that he simply needed a defense, as everyone deserves a defense. Well, and what was the reaction? Well, I would put it differently. Uh, I, I wanted to defend the Constitution. The Democrats were trying to impeach him uh, on grounds that the framers of the Constitution rejected. Uh, there was a debate, and people said maladministration, which is the equivalent, basically, of some of the things they charged them with. And Madison said, no, that would turn the United States into a British parliamentary system where the prime minister serves at the will of the parliament. No, we have an independent executive, and there has to be treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. The Democrats didn't charge him with any of those. They charged him with abuse. They charged them with obstruction things that any president can be charged with. So I came into the case, not really on behalf of Donald Trump, but on behalf of the Constitution, which I have been defending now for close to 60 years. But people don't understand that distinction any more than they understood it during McCarthyism. When good civil liberties lawyers who hated communism, hated communists, defended the right of communists to free speech in order to protect the First Amendment, that was misunderstood. And people in Chilmark, Massachusetts, on Martha's Vineyard, were persecuted by the right, by the McCarthyites. And now their children and grandchildren are persecuting me for essentially doing the same thing their grandparents did on behalf of the left. They don't like it because I'm doing it on behalf of Donald Trump. You, you know, I, I, I want to thank you for that historical reminder that maladministration was proposed as a basis for impeachment way back way back when? That's right, back in the constitutional conventions. And there was a whole debate about it. And and Madison and Hamilton objected to that. And Hamilton said the worst thing would be, the most dangerous thing, he used the words most dangerous, would be for impeachment to turn on who has the most votes. And that's exactly what happened. And that's what people have said uh, uh, in Congress. Impeachment is whatever the House of Representatives thinks it is. no. Members of the House are sworn under the Constitution to obey the words of the Constitution, treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors, nothing else. There's a debate going on now that's very similar, and I will again defend President Trump. They say he can't run for office the third time if he's convicted of a crime. No, the Constitution provides four reasons why a person can't run. If he's under 35, if he wasn't born in America, if he fought in the Civil War against the Union, or if he was convicted and the Senate added to that that he couldn't run. Other than that, a person can run for president when he's in prison, when he's been convicted of crime. I want 
President Trump not to be disqualified because I have the right to vote against him for the Hmm. third time on the merits. All Americans should have the right to vote for him or against him without a bureaucrat or an attorney general deciding who gets to run for president. Yeah. You know, uh, you you mentioned JFK. You actually mentioned profiles in courage in the book. Wasn't one of the profiles in courage for the last senator who was an opponent of Andrew Johnson, who voted not to remove him from office. That's he right. Stood yeah. Up yeah. And it destroyed him, right? Right. And Andrew Johnson was a terrible, god-awful president. He set back Reconstruction. He was just an awful person, an awful president. And yet he should not have been impeached because he was impeached for violating the Tenure of Office Act which the Supreme Court ultimately held was unconstitutional. He fired a cabinet member who had been confirmed by the Senate. Now, of course, every day of the year, um, (laughs) presidents fire cabinet members who have been confirmed um, by the Senate. Nobody thinks that that's in any way a violation of the Constitution, but that's what he was impeached for. And it was a good thing that he barely survived removal because it would have served as a terrible precedent. Yeah, I, I, I can, can we can we hand can we hand Caroline Kennedy that book again to have her reread it? Yeah, I, I don't know if she read it for the first time. And you know, I would defend President Kennedy just like I have defended Ted Kennedy. I actually came to Martha's Vineyard to help defend Ted Kennedy, her uncle, and I defended uh, John Kennedy in the media and Bobby Kennedy against uh, attacks and criticism, some of which were warranted. And um, I'm sure she would have loved the fact that I defended her father, her uncles. uh, But now that I defended somebody she doesn't like, she won't uh, be in the same room as me. That's what America has come to. And and, and it's not about me. I have a thick skin. My wife, on the other hand, and my children, they've been attacked. They have been uh, uh, made pariahs, even though they disagreed with my decision to represent the president. They didn't want me to. But uh, they have been attacked. And but the the main victims are not me or even my family. It's people in America who want to listen to me speak at the library, but I've been canceled. Who want (laughs) to listen to me speak in Temple Emanuel in New York, but I've been canceled. 92nd Street Y, I've been canceled. Universities, I've been canceled. They have a First Amendment right to hear me. And librarians shouldn't be able to become censors. For the first time in history, liberal librarians are now censoring books and censoring speakers. Once I started to defend President Trump, the Chilmark Library refused to carry any of my books. They had 20 of my earlier books, but from the day I defended President Trump, they did not carry a single book. Finally, I literally brought these books to them, contributed them, and they had no choice now, but hopefully to make them available to people who want to borrow them. Libraries shouldn't be censors. It, it, it's astonishing, but unfortunately, it's not that surprising at this point. Uh, you, you mentioned that this sort of unprincipled path uh, really stems from a utopian impulse. What, what, is, what, what is the utopia that, that seems to license such illiberal acts? Well, both the hard right and the extreme left are utopians. They both think they know the truth, capital T, capital T. Um, If you're a true believer in communism, why do you need dissent? If you're a true believer in a particular religion, why do you need dissent? You know, it's interesting that the Jewish Talmud 
is the first book in religious history ever not only to allow dissent, but to honor dissenters. Maybe that's why Jews historically have been in the forefront of, of dissent. But most religions um, and most countries have not tolerated dissent because they know the truth. The hard left knows the truth. They don't need due process. They know who's guilty. They know who's not guilty. If you're a man and you're accused by a woman, of course, of course you're guilty. Um, and, and, and the hard right knows who's guilty. They knew it during McCarthyism. So they didn't need due process. So it's due process for me, but not for thee. Free speech for me, but not for thee. Equality for me, but not for thee. So those are the principles that I've stood for my entire life, free speech, due process, and equality. And all three of them are, are being attacked. And that's why I wrote my book, The Price of Principle, because I want to defend those principles against my friends, you know, my friends, the liberals, whose goals I support and agree with, but whose means I deplore. And they seem not to understand that the ends do not justify the means in a constitutional democracy. Uh, you say at one point, quote, the appetite of the censor is voracious. Right. So censors don't, they're not modest people, are they? No, no. And I have a lot of experience with that because I litigated a number of cases in the Soviet Union. I represented dissidents and refuseniks. I've represented dissidents in other countries of the world. And once you allow censorship, it becomes the norm. I'll tell you an interesting story. I tell it in the book briefly, but I debated a Soviet lawyer at um, a conference of the Helsinki Accords, and I just I complained about how much Nazi anti-Semitism uh, exists uh, in the Soviet Union. And he took out some papers. He was very well prepared, and he said, "Look, it's even worse in America." And I and I looked at them; they were Nazi Party. And I said, "You're absolutely right. There's one difference. In America, it's distributed by individuals. In the Soviet Union, there's a stamp that says approved by Glovlet, the Soviet censoring society." So in a censoring government, there's no neutral. Either it's approved or disapproved. In America, the vast majority of things are neither approved or disapproved by any government entity. That's changing now on university campuses. Things have to be approved and disapproved. And many people, just Larry Summers the other day in an interview, former president of Harvard, former treasury secretary, talked about the new McCarthyism on college campuses, and he was the president of Harvard, in which teachers don't want to allow their students to learn opposing points of view. I taught for 50 years at Harvard, never expressed a personal opinion in class. I always was trying to teach them not what to think, but how to think. And I would engage in Socratic dialogue, always taking the opposing point of view to whatever the student took. Uh, that was a good mechanism for teaching students how to think. Unthinkable today. If I took some of the positions that I took today, I'd probably be fired even with tenure. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy. 
all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, it, it surprised me, and, and I think that you, you, you can go back and remember as well, uh, the, the conformity on college campus today, the degree to which professors are willing to go along with the refor- the, these enforced DEI uh, affirmations, you know, on your annual report. And mm-hmm. I remember that if the administration started pushing an ideological line like that, in, when I'm a graduate student in the 1980s, the faculty would have tell, told them to stuff it. And Absolutely they did. not. And they did in the 1950s when some universities required loyalty oaths. Um, yeah. And the left liberal civil libertarians like me and many university professors said, no, no, no loyalty oaths. Today we have loyalty oaths. They're not so, so why, loyalty oaths, but they are. Why so much obedience today? Well, because- Again, they know the truth. And and also because the sanctions are so great. When uh, huh. I was in college and when I was teaching for many years, if you disagreed with somebody, so they wrote an op-ed and they disagreed with you, today they cancel you. I have so many professors calling me all the time and lawyers and others saying, I agree with you quietly, but I would never say it because it will hurt my chances of tenure. It would hurt my chances of getting a job in another university and it will hurt my relationship with my students. Students today want you to conform. They want you to validate their views, not challenge their views. I used to teach a course to college freshmen. We got 500 applications for 15 Hmm. seminar spots. And Hmm. I would start the class by saying to the students, if you really want to go out of here feeling good about yourselves and relaxed, there's a spa down the road. But if you want every one of your most fundamental views to be challenged to the core, do you want to leave this classroom sweating and angry? That's the class that I teach. And of course, all the students stayed and they enjoyed it. I don't know that I could do that again today um, at a university because I would be expressing views. For example, I gave the students brilliant articles defending slavery. I gave the students Dostoevsky's defense of anti-Semitism. I want the students to learn critical thinking to learn how to answer these points, not just to ignore them as if they don't exist. But that kind of teaching doesn't exist today. And, and back then, you didn't get any pushback, no complaint. No, no, the students would say, gee, that's interesting. I never heard those views. And I would say, yeah, now answer them. It's not enough to say you don't like them. Answer yeah. them. I want to know, I want your rebuttal of Calhoun's defense of slavery. I want your rebuttal of, of Dostoevsky's brilliant defense of anti-Semitism. It's a smart defense. And now I want you to find out what's wrong with it. Um, Calhoun was, a, you know, the wrong, the wrong ideas, but a brilliant mind. Oh, absolutely. There are so many people in history like that, and we have to take them into account. Plato was brilliant, but, but wrong uh, about so many things. Uh, and and we, we cannot accept truth just because of who says it. It's the opposite of the negative ad hominem argument. That is, you don't reject arguments because of who said it, but you also don't accept arguments because of who said it. What has happened to institutions such as the ACLU that were First Amendment defenders? The well, what, how, how did that change? It, the change, it, very interesting how it changed. There's a whole book to be written on it. It changed because of affirmative action. What happened was this. When I was on the board of the ACLU, 
It consisted of the most distinguished civil libertarians in the country. There were many white males on it, but there were a few females, a few African-Americans. And then they decided to introduce affirmative action, quotas, essentially. And once the quotas were introduced, African-Americans said, we're not here to be civil libertarians. We're here to defend the rights of African-Americans. And women said, we're not here to be civil libertarians. We're here to defend women's rights. We're here to defend gays' rights. So caucuses formed within the ACLU defending the particularistic rights of groups rather than the rights of everybody. When I was on the ACLU board, I didn't think of myself as a, a defender of Jewish values. I defended the rights of Nazis to march through Skokie. I defended a young man who was a neo-Nazi who was not admitted to the bar. Uh, but once you got identity politics into the ACLU, then it put the interests of particular groups before the interests of civil liberty. So today, the leaders of the ACLU say we have to balance, balance civil liberties against other values. No, the ACLU should be the one to promote only civil liberties, let other groups defend other values. What's happened to the ACLU? It's become one of the wealthiest organizations in America because huh. it raised a fortune on Get Trump. And that's why it couldn't say anything about the search of Mar-a-Lago. It couldn't say anything about the use of the uh, espionage statute in 1917, the worst statute in terms of civil liberties of the 20th century, and perhaps the second worst statute after the Alien and Sedition Act ever passed by Congress in terms of civil liberties. Yeah. The ACLU was fought against it when it went after Eugene V. Debs, when it went after Ellsberg, when it went after everybody on the left. Suddenly they're embracing it. Uh, many people on the left want it to be expanded even more because getting Trump is more important than anything else. And if we lose our liberty because of the left wing's get Trump movement, it will be akin to losing our liberty because of the right wing get communist movement. There is no principle difference. That's why I wrote my book, The Price of Principle, because I'm sticking to my principles, notwithstanding the heavy costs to me and my family. Let's get to an older personal story that you tell in the book. What was the Club of Odd Volumes and your experience there? So I'm a first year student at Harvard Law School and the phone rings and a distinguished judge, uh, Bailey Aldridge, who was a Rockefeller uh, and an Aldridge, uh, calls me on the phone and said, Professor Dershowitz, I, uh, I'm the judge and, and, and I belong to the Club of Odd Volumes. And we have a tradition. We like to hear the young dons, young professors, come and explain their work because a number of us are on the Harvard board, we're on the Harvard overseers. And I said, great, what an opportunity. I'll be happy to do that. And then I found out the Club of Odd Volumes does not permit Jews, Catholics, Blacks, women uh, to be members. So I called the judge back and I said, look, I have a policy. I'm so sorry. Um, but I can't speak at a club that, uh, to paraphrase Groucho Marx, wouldn't have me as a member. And and um, Judge Walter said, no, no, you misunderstand. We don't want you to be a member. We just want you to be a speaker. I said, Your Honor, you misunderstand. I won't be a speaker at a club that wouldn't have me as a member. Then Erwin Griswold, my dean, ran into my office and said, you've insulted one of the most important people uh, on the board. It'll hurt your chances of tenure. Uh, but I Troublemaker. Will let, right. I will let you change your mind and I will explain it to it 
to him and you can go and speak there. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. And, you know, I got tenure, but I have been a person of principle from the very beginning of my professional life. I'm going to be 84 soon. I am not going to change my principles. I think it was Lillian Hellman who said, I will not cut my principles to fit the fashion of the day. I'm not doing it either. You know, let me let me ask about a background question there. Yeah, you're 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 83 years old. Where you look at your life, your upbringing, your schooling, I'm not sure what it is, but where did the the will to fight on principle come from? What 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 made you a warrior for the, those First Amendment principles? Oh, it's a very say? easy answer. And the answer is in another book that I didn't write, but a book that my uncle wrote and I wrote the introduction to, and it's called The Dershowitz Family Saga. And it tells the story of my family from the middle of the 18th century um, to current times. And everybody in my family was a fighter. My grandfather, who had no money at all, fought to bring 29 refugees from what was then Czechoslovakia to the United States on the eve of the German invasion of Czechoslovakia. My family fought for Soviet dissidents. My family fought so many battles. Uh, my, I was the first person in my family ever to be a secular success, first person in my family to go to college. Uh, mm. And, you know, we were a poor family. But my grandfather, my great-grandfather, they were fighters. My mother was a fighter. So, you know, I learned it at the knees of my family. And it's too late for me to change. And, you know, <laughs> there are people currently in my family that wish I would change because I've made it a little harder for them. Well, I think they should take a lesson, the same lesson from you that you took from your mother and your forebears. Yeah. Uh, they'll be happier when they're older uh, and they and they remember things, uh, I would say. Um, the, the get Trump that would lead, you know, Larry David, a friend, you know, uh, uh, a colleague in some way, and that you would advise him on on things. What is it? What would you say is it about about Donald Trump that puts them so far over the edge? They think he's Hitler. They really do, uh, which is essentially Holocaust denial, um, subtly stated. Um, but you know, it's interesting because Larry David didn't even attack me. He screamed at me. I was you know disgusting because of any direct connection to President Trump. He did it, he said, because he saw me pat uh, Mike Pompeo on the back. Mike Pompeo was my former student in criminal law, and I was patting him on the back, telling him that history will remember him well for his role in the Middle East peace process, the Abraham Accords, etc., which I played a small role in as well. And I know that Mike Pompeo played a significant role. And that results in Larry David calling me disgusting, refusing to talk to me after I helped his daughter get into college. <laughs> but no, no, no understanding or appreciation. The people who have turned against me on Martha's Vineyard, uh, many of them I have done things for. I've represented their children pro bono. Uh, I've written recommendations for their kids. Any kid who wanted to work for me uh, as a paralegal or as an intern, I always gave them jobs, everybody on the vineyard. And today they won't talk to me. Uh, I used to get 50 invitations a year to events on the vineyard. This year I got one invitation and then it was rescinded uh, because too many people would have stayed away or left 
if they saw me come. You know, it has really been, I, I, it, it was a valuable lesson to me because I really now understand McCarthyism and now understand what people can do when they make somebody into a pariah, not for anything they've done, but because they represented somebody who they <laughs> believe did bad things. You know, I, I don't get it. Weren't, the Abraham Accords were really a remarkable breakthrough, yeah. weren't they? I mean, should, shouldn't that be hailed as just an extraordinary success? The people what, what in Vineyard couldn't care less about Israel. They couldn't care less about many of the most important issues of the day. They only care about getting Donald Trump. It doesn't matter. It's not even his policies because, you know, people on the Vineyard are divided. Some support his policies, some don't. A lot of them are very wealthy. And uh, they they supported his tax benefits to the rich. They certainly took advantage of them. Uh, but it's all about his personality and who he was, not what he said or did. I'm not sure if I should ask this or, or if you would want course, to answer. Please. But do you think that if, if, if things proceed with maybe even an, an indictment of Donald Trump, are you going to be involved? My, my but but wife, I, I, and, and I don't, don't answer if you don't. <laughs> no, no, no. I will answer the question because it's an important question. I've gotten six phone calls from people who have been either approached or suggested to be approached to represent Donald Trump if he's indicted, because I know all the best lawyers in America. And they've all told me the same thing. They said, we don't want to be Dershowitz. We don't hmm. want what happened to you to happen to us and to happen to our family. And so the left has succeeded in their McCarthyite way to prevent Donald Trump from getting a good lawyer. I've had a policy for years that I represent people once because I don't want to become consigliore to a family. Yeah. Uh, so very unlikely that I would uh, represent him. I would certainly uh, defend his rights in the media. And anybody who calls me about civil liberties, I'm always available to discuss it with them. F final questions as we wrap up, uh, because th there's so much more in the book. There's the, the story of, of Professor Bowie. Yeah. Uh, an important story that you tell in the book. Talk about the way identity politics have entered into the judiciary and into academia. You talk about systemic racism and systemic anti-racism. But g generally, to, to sum up, Professor Dershowitz, do you think that woke, the woke tide revolution, woke culture is weakening? I don't. I think it's uh, strengthened, and I'll tell you why. Um, among older people, it's weakened. The pendulum is swinging a little bit, but it, it hasn't been weakened among young people. And they're our future. 10 years from now, 15 years from now, they'll be running for governor, running for president. Um, today, I went to the flea market on Martha's Vineyard, and I bought an interesting little button, and it said progressive on it. And I don't like the people who call themselves progressives today because they're regressive. The reason I bought it, it was the Bull Moose Party uh, button for uh, yes. Teddy Roosevelt. 1912. Was a genuine, huh? 1912. Yeah, a genuine progressive, a genuine progressive. Of course, he was a third party candidate and he lost and, 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 and made possible the, the election of a university president to become president of the United States. But he was a true progressive. I think of myself as a progressive, but I can't associate myself with the people, the woke progressives now, because they're anti-free speech, they're anti-due process, they're anti-civil liberties, they're anti-equality. Uh, meritocracy is a dirty word to them. 
And, uh, and I don't think it's losing out on college campuses. I think it's losing out among people in general. And I think, for example, it will be reflected in the midterm and next presidential election. I think woke politics is not good politics for America today. But I'm worried that in 10 or 15 years, when these young men and women are in positions of great authority and power, that uh, their, their denial of civil liberties, their disdain for civil liberties may become part of the mainstream. The book is The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Professor Dershowitz, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It was such a good interview. I enjoyed it so much. Your questions are so excellent. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.